The SOCAP conference is all about people and relationships. And something I heard discussed on a couple of occasions was that business deals are simply another form of a relationship. It's a profound concept because it flips the idea of a negotiation being a battle. And it turns it into a much more intimate interaction between two people and likely between two communities. Deb Nelson knows this well. She looks after clients and community engagement at RSF Social Finance. She's based in the Bay Area, and I was lucky enough to get a chance to sit down with her during my week in San Francisco. These SoCat episodes are meant to be short and sweet, and they'll be published thick and fast this week, so I'll dive straight into it. And if you like it, please do subscribe to the show on your podcast player so you don't miss any of my other guests. All right, here's my chat with Deb Nelson. Here we go. All right, we're back here for day two or day three. I've lost track of the SOCAP conference in San Fran. It's sunny again. The weather's amazing. Apparently, this place gets foggy. I haven't seen it yet. I'm not convinced. Stick around. It will get foggy. That's right. I'm convinced that it's um, it's been great and no humidity. So I do like this city. And I'm here today with Deb Nelson from RSF Social Finance. Thank you for giving me some time in this hectic schedule. It's um, great to be with you. Yeah, and we're doing some short-form interviews, keeping it snappy and just getting some views on different way finance is being done over here and, and different structures. It'd be great to hear about um, the RSF approach and, and maybe we can start with, with what you do there. Sure. I'm the Vice President of Community and Client Engagement and so I work on flowing money in and flowing money out to fund the best solutions, not necessarily the most convenient or comfortable solutions, but the best solutions. And what does RSF do that others don't? What's sort of your special source? We use an integrated capital approach. So that means we do investing, lending, and giving. And so we focus on community, we focus on relationships, and we provide the right kind of capital to the social entrepreneur over a long period of time. So we really focus on relationships, not financial transactions, and we're very focused on deep impact as opposed to we want to grow our assets under management, we want to be the biggest firm we can possibly be. We're a nonprofit organization, and because we're always mission first and because we do everything under one roof, we can work with a social enterprise get to know them, understand their mission, understand the problem that they're solving, and then be their partner over time and provide loans, loan guarantees, technical assistance grants, all kinds of social capital. And by working together with the social entrepreneurs, investors, and donors, there are a lot of problems that we can solve in innovative ways. Yeah, it sounds like you work really closely with those you're funding. Um, How do you ensure you keep that engagement with your beneficiaries? We always use a community approach in everything that we do. So we're always visiting the social enterprises. Whenever possible, we're bringing together the different stakeholders. So we have a social investment fund that flows capital into our social enterprise lending program. And the way we do pricing is very unique. So many organizations link it to LIBOR. We actually, every quarter, we host community pricing gatherings. And so we invite investors and borrowers and RFS. RSF staff members to come together and they talk about why they do what they do, why the investor became an impact investor. Social entrepreneurs talk about why they became 
a social entrepreneur, their mission, their opportunities, their challenges. We talk about the work that we do to try and transform the way the world works with money. And then we talk about pricing and talk about, well, what would it mean if we increase the return that we give to our investors? Oh, that would mean that we would have to increase the interest rate that our borrowers pay. And we have a discussion about it. And based on the feedback and interactions from those community pricing gatherings, that's how we determine the return that our investors get and the interest rate that our borrowers pay. And so we use a community approach to as much of our work as possible. We do shared gifting circles. We host a lot of gatherings that focus on people's relationship with money. And we often start with the question, what did you first learn about money when you were a kid? And how does that still influence you? And perhaps what do you want to let go of in terms of your beliefs about money? So that relationship with money, I think, is a really interesting one because we take for granted the status quo of supply and demand, of economic fundamentals, of, of the business models that flow. And that's had so many problems, you know, and that's really what impact investing kind of addresses. So it's interesting that you take that at many levels. You know, I'm assuming you work with philanthropists, high net worth individuals who have a certain relationship with money, but then beneficiaries at the other end that might not. They might not be as wealthy, they might be struggling with that. So I think that's a really interesting factor. And then another key issue we always talk about in this field is, is market rate return, should we expect it? How does that concept engage, relate to this, um, this new concept of trying to talk about money and understand people's relationship with it? We go way back and we start with what they first observed or learned about money. So we ask them, what did you believe about money when you were 12 years old? And they start to realize, oh, much of what I believe about money, they're myths. You know, I was told never talk about money. I was told if you have money, hide it. I was told leave money and finance to the experts. Well, look what happens when we leave money and finance to the experts. We're in the mess that we're in because we've left it to the experts. So we have them explore their relationship with money. We have them think about what do they care most deeply about. And then we talk about how much you want to align your values with your money. And then we talk about systemic change and how do we leverage capital in all its forms to address some of our most pressing social and environmental problems. And then from the investor perspective, this idea of market rate returns. Do you think that's sustainable? Yeah. I don't. I think that the idea that you can do good and do well, you can do impact investing and make deep impact and generate market rate returns, I think that's a myth because I think that market rate returns are extractive because if you're going for the highest profit possible in the shortest amount of time, then you're going to have negative social impacts and you're going to have negative environmental returns. So we look at blended returns. So we look at financial return. We also look at environmental return, social return. And we encourage people to ask the question, how much is enough? Because many people have more than enough. Many people that are in the impact investing space have more than enough. And it might be that one or two or three percent is plenty. And we certainly know that when we work with our donors, the most disruptive, helpful capital is gift money because that's when we can fund the most innovative, 
the most disruptive solutions. So that's why we like the fact that we have giving initiatives, donor advised funds, all different types of investment funds, and the, the fact that we work with so many thought leaders in impact investing and social finance so we can pull all the pieces together. I think the word I, I, I grabbed onto there was plenty. And I think that's a very interesting one because I think that relates to um, contentment. And I think from a personal perspective, contentment is a really difficult thing to attain. You can have more and more money, you can earn more and more, but not be content and then you won't be happy. So plenty is an interesting one. But that rubs up against the norms of finance and of capitalism, of more is better, greed is good, um, economic rationalism even of the um, homo economicus. I think people don't want boundaries, they want we want to work the hardest and we want to get rewarded the most because then we're the most successful. And I think in some ways that's a good motivator. And so then I wonder, I think impact is the other side of the equation. And while if we're not sort of striving for ever greater returns, perhaps we should be striving for ever greater impact and that that can then be the motivator. And so I'd love to hear about some of the sort of, um, I'm always interested in the innovation, the things you do differently. And I think business model innovation is, is one of the biggest impacts and that I see. And impact investing can be one step towards realizing that, oh, hang on, we don't have to just go for grants. We could build a, a business or, or a cooperative structure. So do you have any you know, interesting innovative stories? We do. And I'll go back to the first part of your question, which was about scarcity and having enough, having plenty. And what we have found, and the data backs this up, is that having more and more money does not make people happier, despite the way we're socialized, and actually giving it away, lending it, investing it in a way that's aligned with your values is fun and meaningful and rewarding. So the clients that we work with, whether they have $1,000 to invest or give or whether they have $50 million to invest or give, they get a lot of satisfaction out of giving it, lending it, investing it in a way that's really aligned with their purpose and their values. One of the things that we're working on is how can we share what we've learned with financial activists? So we're working with groups of fellows every year and we, got, we have an integrated capital institute where we train them on how to use an integrated capital approach and how to think big about deploying significant amounts of capital, both financial and social capital to address our most pressing problems. And then we also look at innovative ownership structures. So one of the deals that we worked on recently was working with organically grown company because they wanted to establish the very first perpetual purpose trust in the United States so that they would never have to sell to investors that weren't mission-focused, values-aligned. And so they created this perpetual trust organization, which meant that they would always be mission-first, they would be owned by a group of stakeholders, not investors, and there would never be new investors that could come in and dilute their mission or decide, we're just going to be a for-profit company, we don't care about this mission anymore. And we were very happy to learn about all different types of steward ownership models. And one of the things that we're doing is trying to spread the word about all kinds of ways you can structure your social enterprises so that that mission is protected and nurtured. Yeah, that's great. And I think the B Corp, the B Lab guys are pushing the benefit company structure and they're trying to get that brought into yes. law in Australia, which has obviously um, had an impact here. 
research and, and I think very much so. of, that, of holding that mission in and, and people can follow the progress of that at home and the outcomes over here and just more in that that I guess sort of an educational element you know you've, you've obviously seen a whole range of social enterprises and they probably all come to you and have ideas there's always this question of debt versus equity in terms of if you're an investor, you know, you have these options, you could you could offer a loan or you could take equity. Do you have a very, very high level approach, but a sort of first, I guess, shotgun approach of, of which is a better option for different situations, like a sort of broad categorization of, of when it works and, and yeah. This is very high level and there's no one size fits all or one golden rule. But if you care about maintaining ownership and control and the power to make decisions about your own social enterprise, and if you can make a loan work, that's often the best option rather than giving up equity, giving up control so that you can bring in cash because I've just seen too many situations where a social entrepreneur meets an investor or a couple of investors and they think that they're totally aligned in terms of vision and values and plan for the social enterprise and a couple years down the road, they find out they're not, and it becomes very expensive. And sometimes the entrepreneur, the founder is ousted, and it, it can get very ugly. So, you know, it's very important for the entrepreneur to think about, to think long term. What is their mission? What is the best kind of capital? And just making sure that it's truly values aligned uh, and that they're doing their homework. They're really reading every word of the contract. Okay, and so yeah, we've seen that a lot. That that debt is often the first step, and it can be. And, and that's a great example that I hadn't sort of put into that idea that it's a way for you to get to know your partners without that that real ownership commitment. You know, we're at SoCap. It's a really great meeting of minds, and and it is all about finance and investing. But there's a spiritual nature to it. It's about what is the meaning of money and 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 values and purpose. And I think that is tied into the heritage of RSF social finance your namesake is Rudolf Steiner so I'd love I think um, a lot of my listeners would would know that name from the Rudolf Steiner schools so I'd, I'd love to hear about how that influences your approach to finance and economics that sort of heritage sure so we use an associative economics approach and that's basically a stakeholder approach it's why we have community pricing gatherings it's why we host shared gifting circles and it really was Rudolf Steiner and now our clients that believe we need to consider the needs of all stakeholders, that it's not just about the wealth holders. And so from the very beginning, it was about providing financing for Waldorf schools. And then we decided we not only care about education, we care about sustainable food and agriculture and the arts and environment and workforce development and climate solutions and economic justice. So we just kept adding layer upon layer upon layer, but we never let go of that associative economics approach. Again, it goes back to working in community and focusing on relationships and impact and not transactions and profit. Very good. Well, look, I promise not to take too much of your time today. There's a lot going on, but I'd love to get your view of the vibe here at SOCAP and you know what you really get out of it and uh, what's so special about the, the unique nature of of this gathering. I love attending SOCAP because I get to see familiar faces, you know, longtime pioneers in the impact investing space. 
And most of all, I get to see the young emerging leaders who have so much passion and really fresh ideas about where we can go with financial activism, where we can go with social finance and impact investing. I was just part of a panel where Akaya Windwood, Joel Solomon, and Amaka Agbo spoke about reparations and what it's going to take to move from an economy that's based on extraction and greed to an economy that's based on regeneration and interconnectedness. And I walked away feeling so inspired and having learned so much. And so it's just a place where I get to recharge and walk away with new ideas and new relationships. Well, there we go. That's a perfect way to end it because that's really what this podcast is all about. New ideas, new relationships. So thanks for sharing your story and uh, hopefully we can stay in touch. Have a great week. Cheers. You too.